John chapter 3. We're going to finish this chapter today, I believe. Verses 22 through 31. Let's read those together. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Enon near Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not been thrown into prison yet. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. And he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word. Lord, we thank you. The words of Christ are extremely precious to us, as they should be. We ask you to give us insight and understanding into this passage as we study it together this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we know Jesus has just finished his uh, somewhat lengthy conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him by night, various ideas about why. The most common uh, understanding is that Nicodemus was concerned about retribution from his Jewish colleagues, so he came under cover of night. There are other options, other possibilities as well. Nonetheless, Jesus gives him a big, huge truckload of theology all about being born again. Born of the water, born of the flesh, born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming in to live inside of you, regeneration it's called, transformation. Nicodemus is having a hard time understanding, but he, he's seeking the truth, and Jesus continues to lay it on him. And then Jesus talks about the light and the darkness and how men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Anyway, that conversation has concluded we talked about the fact that the common belief is that Nicodemus was indeed converted, ultimately. He helped Joseph of Arimathea with Jesus' body after the crucifixion. He defended Jesus before the other members of the Sanhedrin. But now, after these things, what things? Well, what have we covered so far? Chapter 1, calling his disciples. Uh, chapter 2, water into wine and cleansing the temple, overturning the tables of the money changers, driving out the animals, and so forth, and then testifying before Nicodemus. These are the major things that have happened so far after these things, and we do often forget or overlook how condensed the stories in the Bible actually are. I mean, I do it all the time. I don't know about you. Even though we're only in chapter 3, we're already almost one year into Jesus' earthly 
public ministry. And as we talked about before, John's gospel focuses largely on the last several weeks of Jesus' life here on earth. And so one year has already transpired and we're only in chapter 3. And that's true throughout the Bible. If we go back and we study Genesis and we look at the story of Noah and his family, remember it, was a, it took 120 years for them to build the ark. And yet that's all covered in like one or two chapters. So keep that in mind as you're studying the scriptures. It, kind of, it can kind of morph our understanding and our context of things if we fail to remember. Wait a minute. These things took place over a long period of time. The life of Jacob, for example, just years and years. Abraham. Abraham lived to be like 160 years old. But anyway, here we are. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. Judea was at the bottom of the country, Galilee at the top, and Samaria in the middle. And Jesus comes down now from Galilee once again uh, to uh, Judea, <clears throat> down at least on the map, as we've talked about before, Jerusalem in particular is at a higher altitude. But Judea, here we are, of course Jerusalem was part of Judea, but we can see Jesus and his disciples went to the Jordan River Valley to baptize. It says, and there he remained with them and baptized. So it sounds like, you may have heard before, Jesus never baptized anyone, only his disciples, and that is true. Here it kind of sounds like he was baptizing, but John clarifies it in chapter 4, John 4, 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though John, Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. So it's clarified there in chapter 4. The Pharisees were getting word that Jesus' followers were increasing, that he had baptized more people than John the Baptist. And then John tells us, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. Verse 23, Now John also was baptizing in Enon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. Now, what we're going to see here is that to the untrained eye, if you will, this looks like competition between Jesus and John. We'll see in a moment that's not the case, although the, the uh, Jewish elders try to stir up trouble between them. <clears throat> Enon near Salim, because there was much water there, or the springs near Salem. This would have been six miles south of Beit Shan. I've been there several times. It's one of the greatest uh, archaeological digs in Israel. Amazing to see the columns and so forth, the streets. And then in Beit Shan, that's the hill on which they hung the body of Saul and his sons after their defeat by the Philistines. Very significant historical place. So they're about six miles south of Beit Shan at this area of the springs near Salem, or Enon near Salim. And they came, they, the people, came and were baptized, uh, specifically all those who were willing to repent because that's the message that John was bringing forth. 
Mark 1.4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And we've talked about this before too, but this is one of those words that's kind of being cast aside in many segments of the modern church. We don't hear a lot about sin, uh, the blood of Christ, the cross, confession of sin, repentance. But we all know what it means. We've talked about it so many times. To repent means to turn and go the other way. Without Christ, you're pursuing a life of sin. Either intentionally or it just comes naturally. We've all know, we all know that, right? When you're born into this world, nobody has to teach you how to sin. It comes naturally. So to repent means you make a conscious decision. I don't want to follow that path anymore. Understanding I will have my failures, uh, my shortcomings, and that's where the grace of God comes in. But my decision, my determination is to turn, to repent and follow Christ. Knowing that when I fall short, he's there to help me, to pick me up, to keep me going in the right direction. But that was the message. The first words out of John the Baptist's mouth when he went public were repent. Salvation is a gift from God by grace through faith. But in order to obtain that gift, you have to confess your sins before the Lord and repent. So by going down to the river, the Jordan, and baptizing, Jesus and his disciples were promoting, encouraging, and participating in John's message of repentance. They weren't competing against him. They were working with him, alongside of him. Matthew 3.1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look at this, then the next chapter, Matthew 4.17, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus and John were on the same page. And as we know, John came to prepare the way for the Lord. They were cousins, literally, biologically. They were brothers in arms. John the forerunner, they both had the exact same message. And this leads us to the understanding that any true, faithful, trustworthy preacher or teacher will have a message that lines up exactly with John and Jesus. How do you tell if somebody's a false teacher? Does their message line up with John and Jesus? If not, then they are. It's that simple. And yet I've heard people say down through the years, well, I know, you know, I know what the Bible says, but this person seems really nice. They seem really good. I like the way they talk. I guess that's probably what they're going to be saying about the Antichrist as well. So... Keep that in mind. <clears throat> Verse 24, For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Here's a little quote from the Bible Questions Answered website. I just do that because they've got it very nicely condensed here. John's Gospel suggests Jesus' ministry included four Passovers. I think we talked about that last week. With the last of them being the Passover when Jesus was killed. The Synoptic Gospels, that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
They call them the synoptic gospel because they all follow the same basic timeline and storyline where John, the revelator, the mystic, he goes off in a whole different direction. And I love that. Because between the three synoptic gospels and the gospel of John, we get an amazing picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And yet at the end of his book, John said, if all the things that Jesus did and said were recorded, all the libraries of the world could not contain them. But here we are. The synoptic gospels place John the Baptist's death just before the feeding of the 5,000. And John's gospel places that event around the time of the third Passover in Jesus' ministry. John 6, 4. So that would make it almost exactly one year before Jesus died. We know that at the time of the first Passover in Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist had not yet been imprisoned. We just read that here, John 3:24. So he was in prison for less than two years. It was probably not much less than two years because the next event recorded in John's gospel is Jesus returning to Galilee, John 4, 3. While Matthew says we was, was prompted by John's imprisonment, which Matthew says was prompted by John's imprisonment, Matthew 4.12. So there is good evidence that John was in prison for nearly two years, beginning just after the first Passover in Jesus' ministry and ending a year before Jesus died. So just to break it down, right after this section that we're studying today, John does get imprisoned. He's in prison for around two years and then beheaded about a year before Jesus is crucified. Verse 25, Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. Now we're not told the nature of this dispute, but we do know that baptism certainly symbolized purification. And we also remember that the, the uh, Pharisees were critical of Jesus' disciples because they didn't always follow the Jewish purification rites, which involved washing your hands before eating. Now, it wasn't just a sanitary thing for them. It had spiritual connotations, but there was a dispute. They might have been questioning John's methodology or his authority in baptizing because that's a purification rite as well. Now, it tells us here that the dispute arose between some of John's disciples and the Jews. The Jews, in the other three Gospels, they are referred to as the chief priests and the elders. So we know this is not a reference to the common people, but it's a negative reference to those who oppose Jesus primarily from the area of Judea, from the region of Judea. <clears throat> Verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. So you see what they're doing here. They're trying to stir up trouble between Jesus, John, and their disciples, respectively. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. So John's basically telling them, if my disciples are leaving me to follow Jesus, it's nothing more than God's will. It's God's will. I remember Pastor Chuck Smith many years ago quoting this verse. Pastor Chuck was very adverse to 
hyping, promoting yourself, your ministry, your church. He believed that if God was in it and blessing it, that he would draw the people to it. I can't say necessarily that everyone in the Calvary Chapel movement has followed Chuck's advice. Psalm 75, 6 and 7, he would quote us this verse as young men. For exaltation, or in the King James it says promotion, for exaltation or promotion comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south nor from the I-40 billboard. Can you see my eyebrows up there? But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. I know that back in the Jesus Movement days when Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, was just exploding, thousands and thousands of people coming, and there were always reporters and journalists coming to interview Pastor Chuck, and they wanted him to tell them his secret for success. How did he do it? He said, all I did was teach the Word of God. He said, I never had a goal of having a, a large church, a mega church. I just wanted my sheep to be the best fed sheep in Orange County, California. And God did it. It is sad, and it's not God's will for pastors and churches to operate in an attitude of competition with one another. John and Jesus were not competing. They're both working for the same God, Jesus' Father. But the Pharisees were trying to stir up trouble between them. 1 Corinthians 3.1, the Apostle Paul deals with this very issue in the first century church. 1 Corinthians 3.1, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal or fleshly, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. Jesus loves me, this I know. He had to keep it simple with them. They were babes in Christ. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. So he's kind of chastising them a little bit here for not growing up more in the Lord. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men rather than godly men and women? For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, says Paul. He planted the seed. He came along first. Apollos watered. What do you do after you plant a seed in the ground? You begin to water it. Living water. Washing with water of the word. But God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything. Paul did not think highly of himself because he had planted seeds in the hearts of these people and brought them to faith in Christ. He was just doing what God called him to do. So then neither is he who plants is anything, neither he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Yet we as human beings tend to exalt certain people, don't we? Now he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his own reward 
according to his own labor. Verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. We read this back in John chapter 1, verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but, he could, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And so here they're trying to stir him up again. Jesus is taking away all your disciples. And John says, hey, I told you in the beginning, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. It's perfectly right and normal that they would be leaving me and following Jesus. <clears throat> Verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. Now, for those of you who came and watched before the wrath, Sunday before last, how many have seen before the wrath now? Hopefully a lot more of you should see it. It is fantastic. We may have to show it again. But in that movie, it gives us a very clear picture of just what Jesus is talk or John is talking about here. You have a greater understanding. This film really helps you to see what John's saying. Jesus is the bridegroom, and we, the believers, are the bride. And again, as it's depicted in the scriptures and the film, from our viewpoint, Calvary Chapel doctrine, if you will, we believe that the bridegroom comes to take his bride to be with him in heaven at the very beginning or just before the start of the tribulation. No loving bridegroom would leave their bride here on earth to go through that kind of torment. And as I've talked about so many times, you know, this is the ongoing debate, the ongoing argument. In fact, those who believe what we believe are in the minority, but I like being in the minority. Because in the Bible, the majority is usually wrong. People will say, well, why should any given generation on the planet be spared the suffering that Christians and believers of every other generation have had to suffer? Because you go back to the beginning, it started with Cain and Abel. Those who have worshipped the one true living God, whether it be Old Testament believers or New Testament believers, have always been persecuted. Is that true? Okay, but there's two things here. There's persecution, which, yes, all believers potentially will have to endure to one degree or another. But there's a whole different side of that coin and that's called wrath. Persecution is allowed by God to strengthen us, to grow us, to build into us the endurance we need to make it to the finish line. Okay? No pain, no gain, right? Wrath is always reserved for non-believers, the wicked, those who refuse God, those who refuse to uh, receive Christ perfect example of God's wrath, Sodom and Gomorrah, even more so Noah's flood. And the New Testament will be promised that as believers, we will not have to suffer 
wrath. Okay? The tribulation is all about the outpouring of God's wrath on an unbelieving world, okay? That's the difference. So when somebody throws that argument in your face, why do you think that you as a believer deserve to be spared the suffering that every other generation has endured? You t I don't deserve it. It has nothing to do with what I deserve or you deserve. Did you deserve your salvation? No. It has nothing to do with deserving. It has to do with God's plan and God's timeline and the fact that the, the bridegroom, Jesus, is going to take his bride out of here before he pours out his wrath on this world. Okay? If you saw your child standing on a railroad track and there was a train coming down the track at 75 miles an hour, would you just stand there and say, well, God's will be done? Or would you race across there and snatch that child off of the railroad tracks to spare his life? Or what if he's standing out in the middle of the street and there's a car rushing at him? What would you do? You'd snatch him out of there, wouldn't you? And that's what the word means, by the way, to be caught up, harpazo, to be snatched away violently. Because it's going to be a last minute thing when God snatches us out of here right before he begins to pour out his wrath on this world. Okay. That was extra, that was free, no extra charge. <clears throat> he who has the bride is the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. We, the believers, are the bride. 2 Corinthians 11.2 For I am jealous over you, says God, with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you. Remember, Joseph and Mary were espoused. It's just as good as being married. They just had not consummated the marriage until after Jesus was born. They were espoused. I have espoused you to one husband, Jesus, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. We are now espoused to him. When he comes for us, then the marriage will be completed and fulfilled. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Now here John is referring to himself. Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the friend of the bridegroom, or if you will, he is Jesus' best man. He's the number one attendant, calling people to repentance, calling people to be espoused to Christ. And he rejoices rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. John was not in any way, shape, or form intimidated by Jesus or in competition with him. He was overjoyed when Jesus finally made his public appearance. John 1.29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. This is John's version of it is finished, if you will. Remember on the cross when Jesus gave up his spirit, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, or commend my spirit. He cried out, it is finished. What did he mean? He'd finished the task set before him. 
He had finished his mission. His mission to become the sacrifice for our sins. It's finished. I've, I've done what I came to do. And that's basically what John is saying. We know that shortly after this he's arrested. Therefore this joy of mine is fulfilled. It's finished. I have prepared the way for Jesus. Now he must increase, I must decrease. Verse 30. And by the way, we could take, we could learn a lot from John. This should be the heart's cry and goal of every believer. It's a lifelong struggle, but it's one worth fighting for. He must increase, I must decrease. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live. Boy, what a great attitude, I love that. It's not easy. That's why Paul is one of the greatest men of God who ever walked this planet. I've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so as Paul yielded his life over to the Lord Jesus Christ, a, he, Paul began to de decrease and Jesus began to increase in his life. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so by the time Paul was martyred for his beliefs, for his faith, for his ministry... It wasn't that hard because he no longer lived. Christ lived in him. He was crucified with Christ. And the more of Jesus we have and the less of us, the easier it is for us to endure the suffering, the pain, the trials, the tribulations, the persecutions that this world throws at us. The more we're... Remember Jesus said whoever wants to save his life has to do what? Lose it. Lose it. But the problem is as human beings... Even as believers, we struggle with this. We tend to want to hang on, hang on, hang on, right? But Jesus said, whoever tries to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. It's hard. Paul figured it out. I've been crucified with Christ. It's a daily thing too, by the way. Paul said, I beat my body into submission. So you don't think that Paul had his struggles? Yes. Oh, yes. It's a daily challenge to yield our lives over to him. Verse 31, our final verse this morning. It's going to be a shorty. That's okay. Once in a while, it's nice to get out of church early, isn't it? He who comes from above is above all. John is here confirming what Jesus himself had just said to Nicodemus previously, John 3.13. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as we talked about last week, even while Jesus was here on earth, he was with God in heaven as well. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, we are one. He who comes from above is above all. Reminds me of that Michael W. Smith song, Above All Powers, Above All Kings. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. Folks, you've heard me say this 
so many times. One of the biggest mistakes people make is to interpret the spiritual things of God in earthly terms. One, the prosperity doctrine. The Apostle John writes later on, I would that your spirit would prosper, um, even as your soul prospers, something like that. And they use that to say that God wants you to be rich. God wants us to prosper spiritually. Some of the most spiritually prosperous people who have ever lived on this planet were dirt poor, do you know that? And some of the most devastated people spiritually, the most decadent, degraded, deteriorated individuals are the wealthiest. And so you're going to try to tell me that the way to spiritual maturity is through earthly wealth? That runs so counter to the biblical message, it's not even funny. We're very blessed in this country. We've been blessed. We've lived in the most prosperous nation on earth. Paul said, I've learned how to have a lot, and I've learned how to have almost nothing. Because Paul's joy, his peace, his prosperity was not based upon his material possessions. See? So that's a sad thing that people take spiritual truths. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. So, we talked earlier about what does a false teacher look like. But someone who's constantly taking spiritual truths and making them earthly. Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed and therefore it's God's will that every Christian should be perfectly healthy all the time. You know what healing it's talking about there? By his stripes we are healed. Do you know? It's talking about the healing of your soul, your spirit. It's talking about your eternal salvation. That's the healing we need. Because that's, the sin, that's what will kill us. That's the disease that will kill us. It's the disease of sin. But when you go around telling Christians, if, you're, if you have enough faith, if you're really walking with God, if God loves you and you're in God's will, then you won't be sick. Do you know what that does to people? It destroys their faith. Does God want to destroy your faith? Absolutely not. Please don't take the spiritual things of God and of the Holy Scriptures and bring them down to an earthly... What do you find on the earth? Dirt. Don't dirty up the truths of God, okay? Yes, Jesus spoke in parables. What is a parable? It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. But people will take heavenly meanings and make them earthly. We don't want to do that. But the applications to Jesus' parables were always spiritual, not earthly. He did that because the people were lacking in their ability to understand spiritual things. So he used things that were everyday commonplace to them to try to help them relate and understand on the higher level. Okay, John finishes this out by saying, He who comes from heaven 
is above all. And by the way, he makes this declaration twice in two sentences, if you notice. He firmly believes this and wants it to be unequivocally known. Jesus came from heaven and he is above all. Philippians 2.9 Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Above Muhammad, above Buddha, above Confucius, above Krishna, above Joseph Smith. And on and on it goes. And that's why the most popular cuss word in the world is Jesus. You don't hear anybody smash their thumb and go, Oh, Buddha! Why? Because there's no power in that name. Right? So the devil wanted to make sure that we would take the most powerful name in the universe and turn it into a cuss word. You see how he works, that little devil? Philippians 2.9 Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And you've heard me say this before. Even those who refuse to bow their knee to Jesus in this life will have to do it in the afterlife. So do it now while it counts. Do it now while it makes a difference. Of those in heaven, already with the Lord and the angelic beings, those on the earth, those that are here right now, and those under the earth. Who are those under the earth? The dead! <laughs> because they will be raised, some to eternal life. How many are in that group? Hope everybody here. But guess what? Those that don't have eternal life will be raised unto eternal conscious awareness of torture and torment. Who wants that? Nobody should. Okay, every knee. Those in heaven, those on the earth, those under the earth, including demonic entities. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can you imagine how hard that's going to be for those who rejected Christ in this life that in the afterlife they're going to have to kneel and they're going to have to say it Jesus is Lord knowing that for them there is no redemption I would encourage anyone and everyone here today watching online wherever you are don't go that route confess him now confess him today because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's stand. <clears throat> I'm going to lower the lights here. Worship team's going to come, but let's pray. If you have a prayer request, please raise your hand. Lots of them, lots of them. Father God, you see each hand. We don't do this frivolously or off the cuff, offhandedly. We take very serious our prayers, our prayer requests, and we know you do too, Lord. You love to hear from us. You want to hear from us. And Lord, you do answer our prayers. We thank you. We praise you for that. Father, we lift up those this morning 
that are either seeking healing for some physical condition for themselves or on behalf of a loved one, a friend, a family member, a neighbor. Father, these bodies are mortal. They will give out. We do uh, encounter illnesses and afflictions in this life, diseases. But Lord, we do call upon your mercy, your grace, your healing power this morning for deliverance from the various afflictions that come upon us. Lord, whether it's cancer, whether it's um, a disease of the blood, which could be a cancer or something else. could be lung disease, Lord, allergies, asthma, COPD, diabetes. Lord, the list goes on and on and on. Lord, we are thankful for the medical things that are available to us today, but you're the great physician. You can do what no one else can. And we do humbly beseech you for healing, for relief and release from pain and illness so that we can more effectively serve you. And we pray that you'd help us to do that. Lord, that our goal would not be just simply for earthly contentment, fulfillment, and happiness, but our goal would be for health and strength in order to serve you. So we do pray for healing, for encouragement for those who are discouraged. Lord, we talked this morning about euthanasia, assisted suicide. Lord, we don't want to go that route. We want to keep our eyes on you, the author and finisher of our faith. We want to trust you for our health and for our strength. And Lord, no matter what happens, we will follow you. We will serve you until we see you face to face. So we do humbly ask you for healing, for physical health. We also pray for mental and emotional issues, Lord, that you would help us with those with depression, anxiety, fear, worry, doubt, the various phobias that people struggle with, Lord. Again, you, we can conquer those in Christ. We ask for your help that you would give us that sound mind, the mind of Christ, Lord. Please heal those afflicted this morning with anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts, Father. Give us that inner strength and witness from your Holy Spirit that you've called us unto life, not unto death. Pray for relationships that have been damaged, broken, for healing for marriages, Lord, for friendships, for office relationships, neighborhood relationships, wherever we are interacting with other people and something's been broken, something's been damaged, that you would help us to be peacemakers, that you'd bring restoration and reconciliation whenever, however possible, because, Lord, you said as much as it lies within us, be at peace with all men. That's our desire. Help us to be peacemakers, we pray. And particularly, Lord, for those marriages that are on the rocks, we pray that those marriages would be placed upon you, the solid rock, that you'd heal and restore, Father. And finally, for financial problems, you are our provider, Jehovah Jireh. Help us to trust you, to, to rely upon you, to depend upon you, not upon men. No matter who signs the paycheck, you're the provider. Help us to remember that. Help us to be good stewards over the resources you've given us. And Lord, whether we are plenty or lacking, like Paul, that we would praise you, we'd be thankful, we would trust you, and that you would take care of us as you promised to do so. We thank you and praise you Thank you for the power of your word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.